Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome to a special edition of Iron Radio. I'm Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, uh, licensed nutritionist, uh, sports nutrition professor of about 12 years. And uh, we're going to actually go down to Florida this time uh, for, again, a special edition. We're going to have a chat with a couple of people. Uh, Mike Nelson, who's a friend of Iron Radio. Many of you know him. Uh, Sean Casey and Corey Van Wyk. Uh, and we're going to just really go over all the juicy tidbits from this year's uh, International Society of Sports Nutrition event. So let's just cut to that, and we'll see you next week. All right, well, let's just march through the, the schedule here a little bit then. We started the ISSN meeting with... Dominic uh, D'Agostino, uh, Metabolic Strategies for Enhanced Mental and Physical Performance. Uh, what did you take away from that? What about you, Mike? Um, what I took away from that is that it's pretty interesting that they're using it primarily for oxygen toxicity. So for people like our special operators that are using non-rebreathers, that's where they initially were using um, ketones. So they would have people in a ketogenic diet and that seemed to reduce the risk of seizures. And it's pretty interesting stuff. The other part, too, is that they actually have a supplemental ketone yes. that you can take, which is actually a ketone salt that's on the market. Um, medically, they're using ketone esters that were made. But in essence, you would consume it, and it would spike your blood levels of ketones within an hour. So now, in essence, you can induce ketosis, in essence, in someone with just a, a supplement, which I think is pretty fascinating when you think about it. Is that outside the box? You know, there's so many, like, supplements. You're talking about rehashing. We were talking about that, weren't yeah. we? Like, the human body, it, it in non-starving, non-hypoenergetic states, you don't, I don't think it expects to have ketones. Like, so to feed it in a replete person right. as a fuel source, what a cool idea. So... For listeners that don't know, um, ketones are just partly broken down fatty acids, right? And they're mostly drawn from mobilization and storage out of your love handles. But the idea of supplementing ketones is almost bizarre. Swallowing ketone pills, ketone body pills. So, yeah. yeah. I actually bought some. So it's by Prototype Nutrition. It's Keto Force. Okay. And tastes freaking horrible. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty fascinating because normally you can never get super high levels of, say, blood glucose or very, very high levels of glycogen and have super high levels of ketones at the same time. Right, right? exactly. Your glycogen levels may be 40 or 
that normally your insulin and glucose are very low when you're in uh, a ketogenic state. So in that situation, even when you're not mobilizing it yourself, so it's not like, like a lot of people, they associate ketotic diets with getting lean, but it's because you're not mobilizing your own. You just swallowed some, but there could still be like pharmaceutical effects that enhances your insulin sensitivity or, or those sorts of things, right? And that's still Yeah, so they were primarily using it to mitigate uh, oxygen toxicity, mm-hmm. just because from a practical standpoint for the military, it was much easier. Um, and then he had the end of one study with Peter Atia where he showed that there's about, a, I think, a 6 to 8% increase in efficiency with the use of someone who already was in nutritional ketosis by adding like a ketone ester or a ketone salt. So maybe if you can bump the levels even higher for someone that was already in that diet, there may be some performance increments from that. So I guess stay tuned about, you know, and popularity of a supplement that might actually be worth looking at you know what i mean it's not one of those things that looks so iffy like later we're going to get to ursolic acid in just a minute which you know gets a lot of hype and pat, pat arnold was behind a lot of that wasn't he patrick arnold yeah patrick arnold, of it well patrick arnold actually came out with ursolic acid and then dom actually worked with patrick's company for them to make the ketone esters which are still considered a drug but the ketone salts um, Patrick has through his prototype nutrition brand. Okay, okay. Does anybody have any thoughts on Krista Verady and the alternate day fasting? I thought it was very interesting that they did not overcompensate. So what they did was they said, okay, eat your normal diet. The next day eat about 500 calorie lunch. And then the next day eat, you know, ad libitum, right? And they only really ate 110% of what they normally did. Right, so they didn't really entirely make up for the day that they had much, much less. Where I think if I would have, you know, Sean and I were talking about this, if I were to guess, I would have guessed that they would have eaten much more than that on the day they can sort of eat whatever they want. I myself am a little skeptical about that. I was actually in her lab. Uh, I went out to see a friend of mine at uh, U of I Chicago. You know? Oh, interesting. And he was telling me about this because she's been on television. She's been all over the place with this sort of alternate day fasting concept, you know. And, um, and yeah, he was explaining some of that. So I didn't see her talk. But And, hey, the data is what it is. I'm not saying anything's yeah. false. But, yeah, I, like you, I'm thinking... It just seems yeah. like homeostasis, you would eat roughly what you did not get yesterday. If that's not true, it might be worth it. But I would still think there's a certain personality type, you know, that can deal with that better than others. I don't yeah, know. I think what, there's a psychology aspect, too, of that you're not being restricted on that day. You know, so if you ate only 500 calories one day, you would really have to, day in and day out, try really hard to make up that much of a difference, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that may have something to do with it, the fact that it's so drastic. I thought about that with, even with cyclic uh, carbohydrate diets, you know what I mean? Like I've seen some competitors, they don't eat any carbs during the week, mm-hmm. and then they wig out and eat like two large pizzas. But if you think about spreading those two large pizzas back across the week, it's still a hugely hypocaloric scenario. Right, overall, right. Yeah. I'm sorry, Sean, go ahead. I would say uh, one of the other things she was talking about, she's just completing up the study now, uh, she's looking at the differences for a year long, uh, basically year-long alternate day fasting, comparing it to just basic caloric restrictions. Uh, and so what they did during the first six months uh, is a weight loss protocol um, with the alternate day fasting, 500 calories on every other day. Uh, and then during the last six months, they went to a weight maintenance state or weight ma- maintenance plan. Uh, where instead of 500 calories on every other day, they went up to 1,000 calories. 
and they found that uh, um, the data looks like you know the weight loss over the first six months was similar, um, but the, during the, the final six months of maintenance, uh, the alternate day fasting ha uh, was able to maintain that uh, weight loss much more efficiently than what the group that was just doing the caloric restriction was. Yeah. Any advancement with weight maintenance seems to be you know yeah. something worth looking at. Yeah. yeah. All right, back real quick to uh, Dr. Willoughby's talk on ursolic acid. So, Mike, you might know more about what what this even is. You know, to me, it seems like a phytochemical from apple peels. Is that yeah, oversimplified? It's in apple peels. It's other in um, other fruit, that type of thing. Um, the initial studies that were done were kind of more cell studies. You know, a lot of mouse data, that type of thing. The short version is usually there's there's actually a fair amount of literature. Um, Dr. Scott Stevens did a pretty cool review of it, and there's actually a fair amount of literature on it, but there's a huge lack of human studies, right, yeah. and there's really no human training studies, and the hard part is that the bioavailability of it in humans is just horrible. Yeah. I, I think they said 0.6% absorption or something. Yeah, it was yeah. really very, poor. Very and I think that's why you you hear, some, I saw some things online on different forums and blogs about, oh, that's why we tweak it in this way or that way, but then, you know, they keep selling it. And you got to go study that a little. You got to demonstrate what just happened to the solubility. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not just in a beaker, but you know, with some blood serial blood draws or something. So the whole idea, if, if no one's familiar with ursolic acid, is that it would stimulate protein synthesis right through yeah. mTOR. You know, in that whole pathway. So um, the science looks pretty shaky. And I, to my understanding, Darren, I mean, he's only halfway through that study. Yeah. And yeah, it wasn't conclusive yet. They didn't have muscle IGF-1 data yet either, so it was not conclusive, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> wasn't any. And they used a huge dose. Like, they used, I think, to have three-gram dose. And they also had a group with three grams of leucine to compare it to. So compared to that in humans so far, yeah, not impressive. Yeah. So even though it's preliminary in human, that's probably the first human work but even, yeah. even at this mid-stage, I, I didn't get very excited by that. Yeah, no. yeah. Same thing? Okay. Yeah. The next one, I was sort of excited. I, I was sitting with a student there, and, I mean, we were riveted the whole time. I was oh, really tired. Yeah. And Mark Tarnopolsky spoke, and for listeners who aren't familiar, he's an MD, PhD from, uh, from Canada, from Toronto, right? Toronto area. Yeah, McMaster. McMac, McMaster. Yeah, he's from yeah. McMac. And um, brilliant talk on creatine and what it does for health. Right, not just loading into your muscles so you can do a couple more repetitions or even a better one rep max. But Sean, you said something about concussions. What was that? Concussions. They were uh, looking at prophylactic in like uh, mice and loss, and they would you know simulate a brain injury to them. And they found that uh, in the the mice that were taking the creatine, it was thirty six percent less cortical loss, and in the rats, is fifty percent loss less loss versus their control groups. So protection against concussion. Concussions. And, you know, of course, that immediately makes you think about teenagers. You know, parents are like, yeah. I'm worried about creatine. Is this a steroid and this and that? And if anything, this would suggest that it's just what maybe a little league football player might want to think about or a high school football player. With all the concussion stuff going on. Right, because it would help their performance, which excites the athlete, but then it protects them a bit from concussion. Yep. You, you know? know, and the other cool thing uh, he was kind of alluding to on with regards to creatine, you know, we evolved eating a lot of meat in our diet if you want, you know, and the paleo thing is obviously huge. And so if you think about it, you know, our body's kind of adapted with higher levels of creatine in our body from food. 
And so he, actually, I remember I had a note, he actually made a comment that right now we're in a hypocretine state in terms of our dietary intake. Yeah, in fact, uh, was it last year or the year before, Roger Harris, who obviously has done a huge amount of work with creatine, mm-hmm. he was saying the same thing. You know, if you look at, I mean, there's so much banter about paleo. I mean, this is something that's sort of paleo, like you're saying. Exactly. You know, originally <laughs> we ate so much meat. And he was even saying, like, I was talking to Roger Harris at a a little get-together, and he was talking about, like, maturational windows where infants should be fed creatine. Yeah, because it, issues with muscle. Because it helps with brain development, too, you know, but yeah. neural and muscle. Yeah, very interesting stuff. And, then, of course, Mark Tronopolsky, being a physician, he's talking about how they tend to, the way he said it, I poison my patients with all these harsh drugs right. uh, because big pharma, you know, it influences medicine when creatine is a... Food, it's yeah. you know, it's a non-essential nutrient, and you you know what I mean, and it, it doesn't come with all those side effects, and yet it's so neuroprotective on all these different conditions, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. One interesting thing on that too, even like the same thing you're saying with kids, it's it's so funny how like something that's a supplement is bad, right? So Tarnopolsky was saying that you know creatine may have some beneficial effects. The the safety profile is way better than prednisone, which is a drug that has you know all these other things, and parents always ask, they're like, well, you know, should should Junior take creatine? He's, he's playing football. He's going to be a senior in high school this year. I heard that's horrible. That's a steroid. I don't think you should take it at all. And I'm thinking, it's the one thing that's we have more safety data on than like anything else. There's potentially neuroprotective effects. Yeah. And you're worried about this, but yet you're going to let another human run full speed into another human, which you've been doing for 10 years already. That's okay. Right. But this supplement, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I walked away from that being very glad that I put like a couple of grams of my coffee every morning. You yeah. know what I mean? Because yeah. for everything, it just seemed like everything aging, yeah. you know? Um, and I, I didn't fully grasp what he was saying about, it's not just anaerobic athletes, but when you do aerobic kinds of conditionings, you know, it has effects on your mitochondrial furnaces and aerobic metabolism. And I, I just, yeah. it, it's one of those like home runs. And, you know, when I used yeah. to do some consulting, I bet you've heard this too, mm-hmm. is, People would always say, oh, this is like the next creatine. I'm yeah. like, you know, creatine was a fluke home run. I'm not saying other supplements can't work. You know, I'm yeah. very pretty neutral about that stuff, but actually, but it's just amazing. You know what I mean? There's like a 75% consensus in the literature. There's very little as far as side effects go. And I thought it was very cool that they're doing it in anti-aging trials and stuff now yeah. too. So well, it's just, you know, it's interesting because it's almost getting to the point where creatine is almost becoming, in addition to a performance enhancer, almost a longevity supplement, <coughs> yeah. like a lifetime yeah. staple supplement. But don't you see that, I don't want to get on a sidetrack, but a lot of the stuff, in fact, Tarnopolsky was saying, medicine sometimes borrows from what the exercise physiologists are doing, the sports yeah. nutrition people. Usually, oh, yeah. often, it's the other way around, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, right? It's bleeding over so much of what we do, I think bleeds back into yeah. that oh this you know americans are fat so you know maybe this is a weight management thing maybe it's a longevity thing and and i think that's contrary to what a lot of people who aren't weight trainers they think about all this stuff is just almost like bogus or cheating or i don't know what they think of dietary supplements you know what i mean they have some very yeah. funny ideas but watch them yeah once they can benefit from it watch those attitudes change and then the last one of the day on, on day one here at issn was the roundtable that you were in, Mike. Um, Abby Smith-Ryan chaired that, I think, um, moderated that. Lane Norton was in that one. Uh, Dominic D'Augustino was back in there. And the whole idea was um, 
just a discussion, right, about what happens after the diet, right? The back end of the diet. In fact, we recently had an Iron Radio episode about that because every magazine is about get ripped in this many weeks and nobody talks about a refeed or a return to normalcy or what's happening in your body, right? So, Mike, obviously you're the one to talk about that. Yeah, so it's metabolic adaptation. And so at a basic level, if you eat more or eat less, your metabolic rate will go up or down. And it doesn't change as fast as like what people think right because you'll hear all the old nonsense of eat six meals a day to fuel your metabolism or oh fasting your metabolic rate's gonna go to in the crapper like overnight if you didn't eat Um, so it doesn't change that fast but over a period of time it can actually go up or down so if you're dieting and trying to get really lean for a show your metabolic rate is going to actually go down thermic effect of food may go down you know, neat, so non-exercise, activity, thermogenesis, how much you move around, right? If anyone's drastically reduced their calories, you just don't have as much energy, right? You don't move as much. I put um, pedometers on people just to see yes. how often they would move. Me too. And I see that their general movement just drops pretty hard. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, once you get to that point, you know, what do you do to get back out of it? Um, so Lena talked about like some reverse dieting stuff. So slowly increasing your calories on the other end um, back up, which I think is definitely a good idea. You know, don't go out and keep binging for the next couple weeks. Or the old school thing was, well, now you're like super anabolic, so you need to up your calories super high overnight. And I think people just got fat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Well, there's so much in your, your – everything in your machinery is geared toward putting fat back on, you know. And right. I think what was disturbing – I think Lane might have showed this slide. And I've seen this. It's even in the Catch and McArdle, like the standard ex-phys textbook, a hyperplasia, you know, multiplication of yeah. fat cells. And then even though you have more, your metabolism still isn't happy till they're as big as the fewer fat cells you had before the diet. So in other words, it's that whole yo-yo thing. And what do you call it? YOLO, you're yeah. only lean <laughs> once. I've never heard that. It's funny. <laughs> Yeah, and there's good literature to show that if you if you yo-yo up and down, or if you're an athlete trying to cut you know weight for sport off and on, that that can make it harder for you to get lean again. And just anecdotally, I see that in clients. So people who, you know, the first show went fine, second and third show they probably did some stuff they probably shouldn't have done with too much cardio, cutting calories too fast, and. It just became really, really hard for them to get past a certain a certain plateau. First two things, because there's no data, you know, people are always asked, I mean, you're a dietitian, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and I know you work with weight management all the time mm-hmm. too, Mike, and Corey, I don't know how much you've done this with athletes, but the mm-hmm. point being is, how long do I have to hold this new lower body mass before right. somehow my hypothalamus or something in my biology says, this is the new lower set point, you know, this is the new me. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody knows. Maybe it's because it's so individual. We'll never know, you know. But yeah. the, so I think slow refeed is that key word, right, you know. Yeah. yeah, and one thing I do with people is if I can get a pretty accurate measurement, or I've even had them do like a Withing scale, which is just BIA as long as it's done under the exact conditions each day, and just have an idea that you'll see fat loss or circumference or whatever you're tracking, it'll drop, 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 and then you'll kind of reach a plateau for a couple weeks, and then it'll drop, drop, drop again. You never see this straight, perfect, linear line. And so it's, it's good to remind clients that, okay, you're, you're at a plateau because they'll email you. Like, ah, I've been at a plateau for two weeks. That sucks. And you're like, well, but your goal at the end is hopefully to, to stay leaner, right? So 
your goal at the end is actually a plateau, right? So the plateau is your body just, you know, being a little bit happier there. And that's kind of what you want to get to at the end, you know, and how long you leave them there probably depends on as they get leaner, it's going to be a lot, you know, slower if you're going to try to maintain lean muscle mass too. Yeah. I, I think listeners know, I don't work with athletes very often, but I always schedule two follow-ups after even a target date diet, like a competition, you know, so I can say, let's, let's bring this in slowly. It took you 16 weeks or 20 weeks to get here to get your diet in this fairly extreme state. In fact, Danny Shugart was on talking about this Mm -hmm. and you can't just expect to drop all that. And like Mike, you made a good point at the point of a competition. It's not just the dietary stress, it's training stress, it's emotional stress. And you, you know, you need a almost a rehab period to sort of come back out of that. Yeah, because you don't. If you're doing a show like that, you don't step on stage, and then the next day, as soon as the show's over, like all your stress is 100% resolved, right? There's still a lot of stress from the competition, and your body just being in that condition and that low of body fat, and you know all that stuff has to be taken into account. In fact, Phil calls that uh, Olympic flu. And, and I mean, oh, now yeah. <laughs> powerlifters don't worry about lean, extreme leanness, but he's he always gets sick like the week after he builds up over the months toward a big competition. You know what I mean? So I mean, and there's lots of reasons. Training and all that stuff too. Mm-hmm. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. If you simply Google CRC Press and Protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to. Drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people, and you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals, so you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So, thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook – uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes – We are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. (laughs) 
Okay, on day two, just uh, as we move through this, uh, the first talk was about leucine and HMB, um, which is a downstream metabolite of leucine. I don't want to beat that to death, but was there any take-home messages from that? Do you guys remember? Um, I mean, take-home message for me, uh, I think they probably could even have, have highlighted this a lot more, uh, was the fact that HMB is probably at best a conditional supplement, uh, meaning if there's like times of increased training, increased competition, or two-a-days, or any time there's increased like damage, uh, then HMB is probably a lot more effective. Uh, probably not as effective as if you're taking it all the time, because our training isn't going to be you know, really, really intense year-round all the time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I think most listeners are familiar with leucine or HMB triggering muscle protein mm-hmm. synthesis and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, the next one was related in a sense, and uh, Mike Roberts talked about the effects of <clears throat> phosphatidic acid. And I thought this was interesting because unlike something like leucine or whey protein stimulating mTOR, you know, the, that cellular pathway, if you look under the hood, and muscle protein synthesis, um, this was an independent way to stimulate mTOR, at least they hope. Um, and to me, it almost looked like contractions in a pill. I keep saying that, but <laughs> and I know it's not entirely that way, but... Um, it looked pretty cool, but I thought maybe I came away from that thinking a little less excited maybe than the presenter was. I don't. Did anybody have any thoughts about that beyond that? Yeah, I, th- I thought one thing that would help me too is that mTOR is a pretty big complex, and there's all sorts of different parts of it. So I think, and then I know in my head I was thinking, oh, it's just one little complex, you know. But there's <laughs> actually slightly different branches where you can have different binding and possibly different resulting in different activation. So supposedly PA binds with the FRB area on mTOR Mm -hmm. to increase muscle protein synthesis. Um, I think the only two studies that are so far are the one that Stout did in JISSN 2002, where they gave 750 milligrams of of PA, and they saw, was it a 3.7-pound trend in lean body mass? I don't think that was actually significant, but it was a pretty big trend. And then one that just came out, which I haven't read yet, um, Jordan Joy and um, Jake Wilson's lab, they did eight weeks resistance training. They gave it a 450 milligrams before, 300 milligrams after training. And I think it looks like it was about a 2.5 kilogram gain in the body mass. They lost some fat too. So I think that's, for me, that's what I'm waiting for is more training studies to verify those results because yeah. listeners, if you're not familiar, what when we talk about mTOR and a lot of this uh, geek talk with metabolic pathways, you know, cellular function is a lot of times you'll see the message come out of the nucleus, right? Because of tension or because of a supplement like this, the message, the mRNA is sent out to say, hey, ribosome factory out in the cell, build me this protein, build me this or build me that. But the problem is mRNAs degrade, you know, and Mm -hmm. looking at very acute data and saying, oh, look, it, it looks like you know anabolic effects got turned on today. That doesn't mean that they're going to have more meat on their bones six yeah. weeks from now, 12 weeks. And again, like Mike said, there was a, a study or two, but I don't know. I, are you sold? I think it's interesting. I mean, if the other studies hold up, it's probably one of the more promising ones because they saw some other collaborative um, cell data. I think Gunderman, I think, was one of the other guys who had done some stuff, and then Robert's lab had done some stuff. So it looks like the mechanism of action, so I always look at it and go, does the principle even make sense, right? Is there a solid mechanism of action that at least makes sense? Yep. 
Do we have data to show that the mechanism of action actually works? Yep. Do we have a human trial that's with training and athletes to show that there was an effect? Yep. Do we have all of that data, a lot of it? No. There's really only like the two human training subjects, you know, studies. It's so. funny. A lot of the research that like you see at meetings like this, normally you, you see a training effect and then you go look for a mechanism, you know, right. and instead oh, yeah. they see something cellular <clears throat> And then they hope that there's a training effect. You know what I yeah. mean? It's almost a reverse thing. It's whereas I think most like listeners who want to know should I take you know uh, PA should I take phosphatidic acid to get bigger or not? They would want to see training studies. Oh look how much how jack these guys got. Yeah. Then go figure out how it works. But I think you got to understand the scientists need to know look under the hood and look at the engine and and know how it works because then maybe if this doesn't work so well, the next iteration might. Right? Yeah, I mean, and just as a Full disclosure, I live across the street from Kemi Nutra, so oh. I know I went over there. They actually gave me some to try out. So I did it for six weeks, and I don't know. It was all right. I ended up losing eight pounds. You know, didn't see any drop in strength. I mean, I was purposely trying to lose weight, too, so it's, you know, and of one, hard to say if there's, you know, right. just right. an effect from that or if I just did it more intelligently or who knows. Yeah. I think I might give it a try, actually. You know yeah. what I mean? The, like you said, the mechanism yeah. looks legitimate. I mean, it yep. looks fairly logical, you know, and especially because it's, it activates protein synthesis on mTOR and that whole pathway differently from right. what Lucian Whey does. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical still, you know, but I don't know. Is it expensive, Mike? It's pretty darn expensive. That's mm. the downside. But I know Kemi licensed it uh, as Meteor to Biotest. So they're the only ones that have it right now, but they may license it to other people. I'm not sure. So one other comment on PA is that, and this was in a rat study, which they dosed at 1,500 milligrams, so pretty high. I mean, that would be the human equivalent if everything works out right. What's interesting is they showed a pretty dramatic increase in GLUT4 translocation. Which is? Which would indicate better glucose handling. And so my thought then is if that translates to humans and you decide to take PA anyway, the other study they had done uh, pre and then post, so you may decide to increase carbohydrates at that point. Uh, I'm a bigger fan of having carbs before, sometimes during, and then you know after training, if you were to load carbohydrates at any point during the day. So in theory, if the rat study translates to humans, and the glute floor translocation is better, maybe it would enhance by that effect. You know, who knows? But it's something you would do commonly anyway, so you won't have to really go out of your way. Maybe there's a slight, you know, synergistic effect with that too. So, for people who aren't familiar, glute four. Imagine it like little doors. Not it's not the same thing as an insulin receptor, but they respond to insulin receptor stimulation. But they go up to the surface of the cell, more or less, mm -hmm. and they bring in blood sugar. You know, so if, when you do con muscle contractions, this happens. Period. But yeah, what Mike's saying is PA it may actually make more of these doors lying in wait, you know, so that's a pretty neat concept, but still yeah. pretty was that preliminary. Very preliminary, but um, pretty interesting. So was that, was that PA alone? Uh, I believe that was the, I don't remember which group, I think that was the PA alone, if I remember right. What, okay, one of yeah. the other cool things uh, with the PA that they were talking about, in that same study that Mike was uh, referencing, the RAT study, uh, is that they found that the PA... Um, did lead to a significant decrease in the myostatin uh, gene, uh, which was 
the PA plus uh, the whey protein, which was significantly more than any of the other conditions. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a fascinating find. Yeah, he seemed to be looking for a, a synergy between whey protein and, and the, the phosphatidic acid, the PA. And he mostly got it, I think, on several of the slides. But it, it was always that sort of flirting yeah. with significance, you know, and... But uh, it's enough to make me interested. So, and yeah. I and I don't have a, a conflict of interest. I don't live anywhere by this stuff. But, yeah. but you know, like we said, it's a, it looks like a legitimate mechanism. I got one sample free once, so that was oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> You're bought cheap. No. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> all right, and then to wrap up uh, the last session was moderated by an incredibly handsome guy. <laughs> but I tried to pull my eyes away and focus on the speakers. <laughs> Jeff. Jeff Volick was first. If listeners aren't familiar, Dr. Volick, he must really feel vindicated these days in a lot of ways because he did the early work with really low-carb diets, and he did it in the face, I think, of a lot of physicians and dietitians saying, no, 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 saturated fat is bad, all fat is bad, you need low-fat, high-carb, you know, and, and he just kept publishing work, you know, and over the years, and I mean... I, I'm pretty sold on a lower carbohydrate diet anyway, but after watching uh, Jeff present even more data, you know, I just get more and more sold, frankly. And we were talking about this before we hit record, everybody, but like often, and I, I'm not sure if Sean's heard this too, but like in dietetic training, they'd say all ketosis is bad. All ketosis is acidosis and therefore dangerous. And he, uh, Jeff Volek just presented some data, Dr. Volek, and he is a dietitian, by the way. Um, he's one of the rare doctoral, you know, dietitians. But the point being is, um, I saw this data a long time ago, and it was nice to see it again, that the, the amount of ketones in the blood of someone who's not diabetic and they're purposely in ketosis because they're eating like 50 grams of carbs a day or less, let's yeah. say, roughly, yep. um, it's literally an order of magnitude below what a diabetic person would experience. So right. it's like one millimolar instead of eight or ten yeah, or something ten, like yeah, that. Yeah, so <laughs> it's hugely uh, different, you know. And I don't. I'm guessing he follows a low carb diet himself because he looks he very lean. Very mm. much. He's, yeah, he definitely. I talked to him afterwards, and he mm. definitely does. And for, for, I know there's been a couple of people made comments before on our forums, you know, like on our Facebook page and whatnot. They'd be like, I don't understand what Lowry, Mike, and half those guys say. And they, <laughs> Jeff used to be a power lifter, too. I mean, yeah. so he yeah. really fits that whole theme that we have people come on the show, you know, people who are really interested in resistance training. And guess what? They're educated. You know what I mean? So um, he said he's actually been able to squat again these days a little bit because for a while I don't think he could. but. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, more fascinating stuff from Jeff Volek in the, you know, low carb ketotic diets are good. Uh, am I missing anything? Yeah. What are the, a couple of things I thought was interesting. You said that they showed because they, they actually did a study looking at athletes that were high level endurance athletes adapted to carbohydrates and then high level endurance athletes, more fat adapted or, or actually keto adapted. And what they showed in the more fat or keto adapted athletes is all of them their rate of fat oxidation, so how well their body could actually literally burn fat, um, was much, much higher than the other group. In fact, highest on record, as I understood it, right? Highest on record that they've ever found. Yeah, so the lowest person on the low-carb group oxidized more fat per minute on a gram basis than the highest person on the the carb group. Yeah. So even when they took 
normally carb-fed elite athletes who are great fat-burning machines, right? So many mitochondrial furnaces in their cells and whatnot. These guys are better than they are. And if they're elite, right. they're ridiculously better. I mean, they're talking about fat-burning machines. So that just makes sense. You know what I mean? Like I always try to tell my students that you get these biological adaptations to what you eat. And this is a really yeah. good idea. After, after a couple of weeks, you know what I mean? You're, you become such an incredible fat-burning machine. You're literally off the charts, you know, and now there's always pros and cons, you know, and I yeah. see why people do yeah. cyclic ketogenic because he was talking about runners, you know, and then I think Anthony Almada asked a question. Wasn't it Tony Almada? Somebody asked a question about what about high intensity or might have been Sue Kleiner, Dr. Kleiner. But somebody asked, well, listen, really high intensity, like anaerobic kinds of stuff, that's it's either ATP and phosphocreatine as an immediate fuel, but mm-hmm. also some glycogen use. So what do you do with that? And I think he made the comment, well, you know, you can just maybe those people would sip a little. I think he talked about sipping a little bit of carbohydrates during exercise, or like I said, a lot of lifters might do the cyclic thing. But I'm getting more and more interested. I mean, what we do at home is we don't eat a lot of bread and pasta anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's not like to a ketotic point. And I, you know, I'm really interested in the super low carb stuff because it does look like you become such a damn good fat burner. It almost compensates. Where you don't, like he said, the, the runners don't hit the wall because they become so good at burning fat. Even lean people have plenty of fat, you know, yeah. run multiple marathons yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. The other part that I always wonder in the back of my head, though, too, is that if you've got an athlete hooked up to the metabolic heart, right, so you're measuring what they're using, carbs or fat, that these people for a ketogenic diet, in order to get there, like Lonnie was saying, very, very low carbohydrates, you know, moderate-ish, almost lower if you look at bodybuilding-type mentality protein. Yeah, right. right so yep. moderate to low-ish protein for the population we talk about and really, really high fat. So when you look at the metabolic card, it'll say, yeah, you're really using a lot of fat as fuel. But if you're thinking body composition, is that the fat that they ingested or is that the fat from that's being released from their tissue? Right. And the reality is it'll show the same on a metabolic heart. Right. So they may be very good at just cycling fat all the way through. And granted, most of the ketogenic diets do show a little bit improvement in body composition right. and that type of thing too. So I was actually impressed by the amount of fat loss over time. So like you're right. saying, but it's, it was a hypo. It's a good diet point, too. right? Yeah. How much of this was love handles versus right. the fat that I ate for breakfast mm-hmm. when bacon and eggs? You know? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> right. And one other comment too. Jacob Wilson did one of the only other studies I've seen on resistance training and keto adaptation. So ketogenic diet, and they had them adapt for two weeks beforehand. Which most of the studies, if you look at like a lot of the old high-fat diets, it was, hey, if you come into the lab, if you were a carbohydrate-using endurance athlete, well, screw you, Monday, you're going to be on a ketogenic diet, right? So very hard adaptation. So they actually had them adapt for two weeks before. I believe the keto study was, I think, six or eight weeks. Mm-hmm. And they said that they didn't see any drop in limit strength at the end of that time point. So squat, bench, bench, you know. Those types of exercises were okay. And then they actually gave them carbohydrates back for a week. And what they saw was a drop in the use of fat as fuel. They also saw that they actually added more fat mass during Mm -hmm. that week. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting about power output and speed, because I asked them, I said, well, what happened to speed and power? 
We said that when they measured a, a wind gate, which you ride really, really hard for 20 or 30 seconds, measure power, it's really brutal. It feels like someone dumped concrete in your legs. Um, that during the keto phase, that was actually depressed the entire time. Mm-hmm. But it came back once they gave them carbohydrates. So that's always something I wonder about, too, from just people that are doing strength and power type things that it, anecdotally it seems like if you're doing very low reps, right, so phosphocreatine primarily, you've got long rest periods, you have enough time to replete that energy system. But if you're doing more hypertrophy work or glycolytic work, CrossFit type stuff, I don't really know right. for sure. That right. that seems like a pretty big stress, I think, to put on the yeah. body. I just not soul yeah. that that would be the best well, approach you know, yet. Jeff, he, I mean, he barely highlighted a training study he did, like a resistance training study, um, where the low-carb group lost more fat over the course of the study than just a low-fat group. Um, and that's all he said. He didn't say yeah. what the type of training was. He didn't say strength, power. All he looked at was body comp, in which the low-carb group won. But, you know, what kind of training were they doing? Were they powerlifting? straight powerlifting or were they doing like well, that may be that where the guinea stuff. pigs you know the bodybuilders like like what i see a lot of those guys do is they the, during the monday through friday work week they're mm-hmm. they literally are like you know ketotic and it makes sense that right. if when you well, start to refeed your blood glucose right. insulin goes back up fat burning all but stops or at least slows, slows down, down right. but so i would keep that period fairly brief you yeah. know what i mean i would think that just in a couple of meals you might be able to get some muscle glycogen back so like course like you're saying so Maybe you're less fatigued, or you have the power out. You can maintain power output, like Mike said, in a in a you know power environment or whatever. I don't yeah. know. The thing that stuck with me, I think the new thing would be that the weightlifter mentality is even if you're on a very low carb diet, super high protein. Uh, Mike, you were saying this, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's I thought because if you eat too much protein, a lot of that's going to become blood sugar and right. you know and actually screw you over. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I had to guess but maybe something like 20 or 30 grams four or five times a day and i don't think you have to go crazy with 60 grams four times six times a day you know what i mean a protein i think it actually ruins the ketosis or it could right yeah it gets converted off via gluconeogenesis and the other part too is that ketones appear to have a protective effect against muscle so paradoxically if you drop your protein that allows you to get into a more keto adapted state so you're producing more ketones now and it appears that ketones actually help prevent the breakdown of muscle tissue. I, I still don't. I am just not completely sold. You know what I mean? When it comes to super low-carb diets, I've seen bodybuilders yeah. who diet stupidly. They cut all their carbs from the very beginning. And even in the presence of anabolics, lose a huge amount of muscle mass. But that might be because they're hypocaloric, too. They had, they're right. not bringing their fat in their diet up enough to compensate. You know what I mean? Maybe they're just doing the low-carb badly. Yeah, you and know. anecdotally right. for some of the people I've worked with who do CrossFit or do high glycolytic work, I've had a few people, with, and granted, I was, I was talking to Don about this too, is that they're doing a self-report ketogenic diet. You know, I don't have, you know, the blood glucose strips to send to them. I don't know what their ketone levels were in their blood. So they, by a diet analysis, it looks like they should have been in ketosis, but I have no way of verifying that. Um, but anecdotally, they just appear to do well for four to six weeks and then just tend to implode on themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe they haven't done a work-in period. Maybe they haven't you know, done enough to get ketones up to a high enough level. But I, I'm still not entirely sold that when you're doing that high glycolytic work, 
that a ketogenic diet is going to be best. Yeah. So it's yeah. my gut feeling. Because like, like you were saying, you got to think about weightlifting performance at some right. point. Right. You right. know. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we'll wrap up with Brad uh, Schoenfeld. Um, Brad was personal trainer of the year from the NSCA a couple of years ago. He's on the board of directors. I think he's a like co-editor of the journal Strength Conditioning Research or one of those journals, yeah, um, Strength Conditioning Journal. This is PhD. Um, and he was giving some cool data all about different types of programming. And, you know, it's the kind of stuff that I've given a lot of thought to almost all that before. Yeah, and he right. seemed to be a fan of undulating periodization in a lot of ways where you yeah. can't always do heavy low reps. And, yeah. He has a lot of block know. periodization was the method he showed most of the time. But I don't. any other thoughts from um, his talk? I just said that, and I totally agree with this. He said that volume is probably the number one thing for hypertrophy. And that's the one thing I've noticed with clients, so I'm a little bit of a goon where I track every single exercise, every single rep, volume, intensity, and density of everything that they do. I've been doing that for probably the last three years now. And what I find is almost what he said, too, about variety is a lot of times I can't get people to do maybe six sets of deadlifts because they get joint issues or they get bored. But if I split that between you know three sets of a deadlift and three sets of a bent-over row or variations of deadlift, sumo deadlift, conventional deadlift, Jefferson deadlift, right? For people who are more physique athletes, not necessarily power lifters. Um, and if I keep increasing their volume, that, that seems to be a major driver for hypertrophy. And if, even if you're thinking about body composition, well, you're doing more work, right? So you're expending more calories, more tissue turnover. And if you have enough variety, that just, I would agree that that seems to be the best for both strength and especially hypertrophy. Yeah, and he was saying volume is the number one yeah. driver for hypertrophy. It, the flip side of that, I think, what Fortress always says, volume kills, is what he says, and and you know what he's talking about: too much intensity with not enough variety. Oh yeah, does kill you. You know what I mean? It'll just ruin you, and yep. you know, people stagnate or they get hurt or yep. whatever. But like you're saying, if you can mix that up, yeah, I found that to get high enough volumes, I had to add a fair amount of variety to programs. So otherwise, people would get joint issues, joint pain. They felt kind of burned. And then you can kind of oscillate in, you know, the rep ranges and that kind of stuff. It seems like the higher reps, the 10 to 15 reps, don't really beat people up nearly as much as sometimes the heavy strength, the more neurocentric stuff tends to just fry people a little bit faster. I don't know if listeners can hear the vacuum cleaner. This is <laughs> this reminds me, you know, isn't like it funny? Like Mike and I sit down at the end of these meetings. When we were in Spain, it was the same thing. They were chasing yeah. us out. The tables are getting loaded, you yeah. know. We're all hoarse and, like, burnt, you know. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well, just one thing about his presentation that I thought was kind of cool was, you know, he kind of has this, this, what he calls the metabolic phase, you mm-hmm. know. It's, it's really short as a, as a part of his whole um, block there, but um, just not to be afraid to go to, like, the, the, the higher, what we would consider the higher rep ranges, like 20, like 20, 20 30, reps. Yeah. Um, not only that, like, he, he's talking about increasing lactate threshold, but as a, from an overall hypertrophy standpoint, uh, increasing the hypertrophy of the type 1 fibers. Possibly. Um, There's no biopsy data yet, but that oh, okay. was his theory. But, okay. yeah. yeah. But, you know, you're talking, though, from a you know, joint standpoint and just overall recovery. Sure. You know, obviously you can't use a big load with those. Right. So you have a short, maybe two- to four-week time frame where you're working on increasing your lactate threshold, mm-hmm. which will make the 6 to 12 reps feel a lot easier, or even, like, the lower reps. 
Right. Um, and you're giving your joints a little bit of a break. So too. for people who don't know, I know a lot of listeners do, but type 1 fibers, right, always considered the small endurance fibers, not a lot of growth potential. And, you know, the textbook stuff is that power training is like 3 to 5 reps. Bodybuilding training is 8 to 12. And if you do 20 rep sets... That's just like muscle endurance, and you're never going to build any mass. And he's like, no, that's not true. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it reminds me of what Stu Phillips has been mm-hmm, doing right. with 30% of one rep max, yeah. you know. And although he did say the strength was pretty abysmal. Right. It's one of those things where yeah, bodybuilding and powerlifting almost diverge. You know, the, the real high rep stuff might help the bodybuilders. It's not going to do a ton for the powerlifters no. probably, at least not immediately from the strength perspective. Yeah. They'd end up with a more meat, a bigger mm-hmm. engine. But. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and the phase would just be short, it, especially if you're a powerlifter. It may, may only be a week or two just to you know, let the joints recover. Yeah, whatever, and know. I think in the study he did it was four weeks, yep. I think. That well, that's his, like, his typical plan, yeah, right. four weeks. Which so. it makes sense for a study, right? Because you want to see what is the effect of this one thing and then figure that out too and... One thing I started doing with programming the last year, I, I call them uh, dude broad days. <laughs> so you would have like your yeah. normal Monday, Wednesday, Friday, maybe optional weekend. You're doing, you know, squat, bench, deads, you know, pullovers, or, you know, I shouldn't say pullovers, um, rows, pull-ups, chins, that type of thing. And what I found was you could add, like even most people, like a Tuesday, Thursday, just go to the gym, do like the Lonnie, you know, pump training type stuff, you know. High reps, 10 to 15 reps, not necessarily to failure, but almost the old school bodybuilding, you know, arm curls, you know, so you're doing much less muscle mass per se, you don't have as much neuro effect, right? So you've got a little bit more just old school hypertrophy type stuff. Most people like doing it and most of the time, anecdotally, you can add almost those one or two days in and it doesn't affect the rest of their training. Most of the time their joints actually feel better. Um, so, yeah. and yeah. that'll vary in the person and how much volume they can take in recovery, but along those lines, that's a, I never really thought much and maybe it's cause with work, it's really hard for me to do this, but adding overload just from a frequency point of view, yeah. like if I could get in the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday, then maybe, yeah, for certain phases, there's also Saturday, right. even sure. if it's fluff work or, yeah, yeah. you know. And But a lot of the stuff he was talking about, actually, we've talked about on the show before, which is stuff like you got to think about systemic nervous system burnout and stuff, too. I mean, we had one guy on the show years ago, and I don't remember. Um, he was a competitor, but he would come in, and he would do a seven-on, one-off split or something like that. He would literally, one day, was just biceps for an hour. Oh, wow. The next day, was just triceps, you know what I mean? And what I, I think maybe he's not addressing is, uh, sure, he's only hitting his biceps every seven days, but he's getting that, you know, adrenal, uh, central nervous, all that sort of central stuff every day, and right. it's so inefficient in a way, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's not. I don't think he was considering... The central taxation, yeah, right. you know, so it's not just peripheral tissue damage, you know what I mean? you got to think about your... Uh... Yeah. The other thing I found, too, with volume stuff is that, so I don't actually program any set rest periods on people anymore. So if they're doing, let's say, the Delorme 3 by 10 I'll say, all right, do your first set, and when you start your first set, hit start on your watch, and then do your 10 reps. Rest as long as you need to do 10 reps again. So if you went and you only get 7, you didn't rest long enough. So let's say that's two minutes, right? Ten reps. And now, same thing again for your third set. Rest as long as you need. Maybe you have to rest three and a half minutes, and now you get ten reps again. So that way, even though the rest is a little longer, 
you're keeping the quality of work much higher, right? So you're being able to do more volume. Most people enjoy it better. Most people feel better because it doesn't appear to be quite as taxing to do less volume, right? So it's easier way to get more volume, especially if volume is a driver of hypertrophy. Yeah. This is just observational, but very much along those lines, when I used to sit at the front desk of a gym, and maybe listeners who do this, you could do this, but <laughs> at the top of every hour, I just put 275 on the squat rack, and I would go do six reps. Yeah. And I did it for my whole shift. You know what I mean? And what I noticed was what you said, the quality of the contraction. Like very I went up, high. I warmed up very, very lightly before each one, but, you know, but not really a lot. And yes, the quality of the contraction was so, and the next day I could barely move, you know, because I tend to get very sore. But yeah. to me, that was, I know it's a, not a perfect marker of effectiveness, <laughs> but, you know, let's face it, it's something to go on. And I would just, clearly, that was better than had I tried to do that every three minutes or something right. like that, you know what I mean, until I got my eight sets or something. Yeah. So. All right, guys. Any final thoughts, closing thoughts? No, overall was good. Um, Yeah, definitely lots of good information and good times as always again. Yeah, we always encourage, I mean, even Phil's come, you know, once or twice. And he's like, and some of the students are like, oh, there's sort of that little almost Arnold Fitness Weekend Expo thing that goes with it and stuff. And that's a little uncommon. You'll see an expo with different kinds of conferences, you know what I mean? But this one is, it's it's practically a booth babe experience, you know, (laughs) at a science meeting. It's just kind of fun. All right, cool. Well, that's signing off for this week, everybody. We'll see you next time. Hey, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to tell you about some of the cool new stuff us guys at Iron Radio are bringing your way. Thanks to our loyal supporting members, we have enough cash flow to start migrating to Lipson, arguably the premier podcast host, and one that serves up some very high-end shows and tools. The change will start slowly with a little backup page that can be found right now on the Lipson website. This means our occasional server errors cannot keep the show out of your hands. But as we move more and more content over to the new server, it is going to allow us to do a couple of brand new things. First, we're playing an Iron Radio app for iPhone and Android believe it. If you're not sure what RSS feeds are or how to describe in iTunes, apps are a very simple way to get our content, either by downloading it or even streaming it through the app on a phone or tablet. Even better, you'll occasionally see a little E on an app link that means there's extra content you can access for that show. For example, we can add extended audio to a show or even pics like wallpapers or sciency graphs that support what we're saying. The iPhone app even has a search feature. Want the show with Eddie Cohen right now? You'll be able to grab it quickly. Second, you'll see an improved media player on www.ironradio.org. You can download or listen easily right from the home page with no other windows or pop-ups necessary. Third, and maybe best, we'll be adding all new bonus content. Behind the scenes, special interviews, audio articles delivered from co-host personal libraries, on-site coverage, editorials, rants, bloopers, and more. The growth of the show and the new functionality does come with some cost. Starting in June, episodes older than a year, 50 shows will become premium content. There are several reasons for this. For one, 
Serving audio to our growing listenership through a big boy system like Lipson costs a bit more. Second, our RSS feed service called FeedBurner has a limit, so this will keep us from having to drop early episodes one at a time as new ones come out. In fact, here's a tip. If you want all the old episodes at zero cost, download them before June 2014. We're telling you now because that's how we roll. So how does premium content work? You pick up an inexpensive subscription at my.lipson.com, which gets you every Iron Radio episode plus new bonus content that no one else can hear. These subscriptions are very cheap and can be gotten monthly, yearly, etc. Put when you want. Further, if you're a current supporting member through PayPal, we appreciate your ongoing support. Free new content each week is possible because of your dedication. You help thousands of young lifters, or anyone, get news, education, and entertainment that they otherwise might not get. Simply email me through the ironradio.org homepage, and our web guru Lonnie will buy you a year's membership on my Lipson as an iron brother or sister. Finally, let me reiterate, as we grow, we want to keep new episodes free forever while providing better services and content for the whole Iron Army. Thanks 50 times for your ongoing support. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.